0: Good morning to you all. Thank you for being with us today. Our Bible reading today is going to be in Genesis chapter 25. We are breaking the halfway point, almost, in this book. Some thought it couldn't be done. Some thought we'd never get here. And here we are, almost to halfway Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to read verses 1 through 26, and Lord willing, that will be covered today, starting in verse 1. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak and Shuah. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abram gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living he sent them away from his son Isaac. the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beer lahai Roe. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeder, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paranaram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pause in our morning of worship to come together to you in prayer again. Corporately, joining together to bring our requests, to bring our needs before you and to seek your face. We worship you this morning, and Father, as we have your word open before us, we ask that you would help us in this time not to be distracted but to be focused on what you have in your word. We pray that your spirit would be at work on our hearts, that your son would be lifted up, that you would be pleased in this time to add your blessing to our study of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Benjamin Franklin once said, If you would not be forgotten as soon as you are dead, either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. I thought that was uh, significant coming from a significant man. As we look today at Abraham's legacy, what is Abraham's legacy? Well, it's hard to measure, actually, when we look at Scripture. It's hard to narrow down uh, what his legacy is. Uh, is where it ends, perhaps. I think of my own life and reflect back on uh, when I was a young boy. I was born in Arkansas and grew up there until I was nine, and uh, both of my parents worked, and so we had babysitters who took care of my sister and me and my younger brother. And they weren't related, but uh, they were like grandparents to us. And since we were in Arkansas, we called them Grandma and Papa. So that's who Grandma and Papa were, though they weren't relatives. And they were wonderful people and raised us very well in uh, the, the hours that we spent and the, and the years that we spent at their house. And, and uh, it was interesting uh, growing up there. They were much, much older than my parents, even older than my grandparents, I believe. and uh, But they had a Bible. And I remember flipping through the Bible, and I, I can still, in my mind's eye, see the picture, the painting that was in that Bible of the scene, for example, of uh, the the flood, I can still picture that, and I can still picture other images that were in that Bible. and And to me, it was just a storybook. I didn't know uh, that it was anything special. And uh, but reflecting years later, when I was eighteen and heard the gospel and became a Christian, I was reflecting back on how I had spent time at their house, and I realized that they were Christians that they uh, believed God's Word, that they trusted in Christ, and they did their best to direct us towards Christ. And, and I was able to spend time not with Papa because he had passed away when I was much younger, but with Grandma as a Christian. And I remember very clearly uh, when uh, on our honeymoon we had just gotten married and we were driving from, from Canada to the States and, and we stopped by to see Grandma. And uh, I love Grandma. She's my, you know, she's my Grandma. <clears throat> and she sternly warned me about how I should treat Stephanie. <laughs> Here I expected to, you know, her to talk to Stephanie about how great Brennan was and such a lovely boy and, and, and all, you know, isn't he sweet and I'm so glad you're married. No, instead I got the, the finger in the chest, right? <laughs> Make sure you take care of this girl. She seems like a good one. And so I think of that legacy, and I, I'm sure they prayed for us. I don't uh, I know they prayed for us. I know they, uh, they would take us to church occasionally. I remember a uh, distant memory of going to a VBS when I was about four or five years old in this little country church, and they were the ones who took us there. And, and any connection with church that I had in my young years was through them. And I look back now and I think of how um, members of my family have come to Christ in recent years. Uh, recent, you know, the last 30 years or so. <laughs> It's all relative, right? <laughs> but how, how in recent years, uh, numbers of us have come to Christ who were not Christians at the time. And I think of the role that Grandma and Papaw played in our lives. And I don't know, but, but I like to think that uh, the fact that, um, that I get to stand up here and, and read and teach and preach God's Word is an aspect of their legacy, their prayers being answered. Well, Today we're going to look at this passage about Abraham's legacy and we're going to see uh, subsequent generations and see what takes place in, uh, in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and, and even introducing uh, Jacob and, and then all the brothers and all those names that I appreciate you not laughing at me for the way I read them. You notice I just pressed on through with boldness as if I was saying it right and had no idea. But... Uh, We're going to look at this passage, and and Lord willing, we'll make it all the way through these uh, 26 verses. But I want to notice something right off the bat. We're going to look at this paragraph by paragraph. You see you've got an outline in your bulletin that has four points. And the first one there is that Abraham removes rivals. Abraham removes rivals. We see right off the bat, Abraham, we've already buried Sarah. And so Abraham is moving on in life. We've already seen uh, the story of uh, of Isaac and Rebekah, and in and that beginning, and, and all of that. But we see in this situation that Abraham takes another wife whose name was Keturah. And so now he has another wife, and he begins to have children with her. Now, there's, there's some question whether he married Keturah before or after Sarah, uh, and, and all of that. But the, but the point is that he marries her, and they have loads of children and grandchildren. Between the two of them, all those names I struggled to pronounce are her children and grandchildren there. And so you see that, that Abraham has taken another wife and there have been other sons been born and even grandsons who have been born, which is great. The family is growing, but these are competitors to Isaac. These are competitors for the inheritance. And so it's important what we see there in verse 5 we see that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Despite all these other brothers, and there are numbers of them, despite the fact that uh, Keturah was a much more productive wife, as it were, she had far more children, and they together as a couple had far more children, despite all of that, it is Isaac who is the heir. And that's indicated by the fact that Abraham gives him all that he had. Which is interesting because we don't tend to pass on uh, our inheritance until after we have died. We leave a will and we leave it to the executor of the estate to take care of all of that stuff. Hopefully we've made those decisions before we died. Otherwise it causes all manner of problem within the family, right? But in this culture it was, it was the, the way they did things that the, 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 the patriarch when he was about to die would go ahead and give the inheritance before passing on. That would solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? That's part of the problem with with David later on that he uh, there was argument about whether he had specified who, no it was was Solomon who uh, hadn't specified who was going to be his heir which led to problems in the kingdom. But he identifies Isaac as going to be his heir and he gives him all that he had but he didn't just overlook these other brothers. Look at verse 6. He said but to the sons of his concubines, which by the way raises the question whether there were other wives besides just Hagar and Keturah and Sarah. Maybe there were, there were more, but regardless, that's, that's not really the point. But, but the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. So he didn't ignore them. He didn't pass over them. He didn't banish them and, and, uh, and say good riddance, but he gave them gifts. But those gifts paled in comparison to the inheritance that he gave to Isaac, who is the child of promise. But not only did he give them gifts, as soon as he had had given them gifts while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. He gave them gifts and he sent them away to separate them, to separate these competitors, these others who might make a claim on the inheritance, to separate them and move them off the scene so that the focus would be on Isaac once again. Isaac is the air and so he recognizes that he needs to separate them this this whole chapter actually reminds me of of a uh, not really a, a high moment of my parenting career where two of our children were squabbling with one another and, and squabbling incessantly and you know how it is if you have more than one child you've seen this right and they were just fighting and fighting and so finally I had the brilliant idea all right you can see a peek into my brilliance here i thought all right we will take one of my t-shirts and put them both in my t-shirt. Well, I thought it was a brilliant idea. It was not a brilliant idea. <laughs> That's like attaching two cats who are fighting, you know, tie them together. And, uh, and so they, uh, they fought and continued to fight, but now they're in closer proximity, and now they're not just mad at each other, they're mad at me, right? And actually, if I were to quiz them about it, I think they're probably still a little bit bitter about it, and that was like over 10 years ago. It was a bad idea because sometimes siblings who are uh, in rivalry with each other need to be separated. And I learned that lesson slowly, painfully. And Abraham learns that lesson as well. He recognizes that, that Isaac is, is one of now a number of sons. All, all along the focus has been on Isaac, the only child. And, and, and yeah, there's, there's Ishmael, and, and, but, but Isaac is, is the only child and now there are all these others. He's one of a number. And so Abraham separates them while he's still alive. Abraham removes rivals. But then we move on, and we're going to see a pretty sad point in the story as we've been dealing with Abraham since really the end of chapter 11. And here we are in chapter 25 of this book, and we're still talking about Abraham. We've gotten to know him well. But as we see, starting in verse 11, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. We've been with Abraham a long time. We've been talking about this man and we've, we've gone, gone with him on his journey uh, through all of this where he uh, starts out in uh, Ur of the Chaldees and, and Joshua 24 tells us that there he was an idolater, He goes from that to being called out to leave the land, uh, that land to leave His people, and uh, ultimately to leave that idolatry, to be uh, called into a new land, a land He would be shown, to be called into a relationship with God, to be given remarkable promises by God. Uh, We've seen Him through decades of infertility and other domestic squabbles. We've seen Him take terrible missteps and sometimes falling on his face in his walk with God. We've seen him as he has won great victories and we've been amazed at his faith. We've gone with him through that. We've seen him have conversations with God and God make promises in the most vivid, visceral ways. We've seen all along that Abraham has been protected and blessed by God, and now he's dead. Now he's gone. He moves off the scene, and the story is no longer about him. And really, the story wasn't about him. The story is about God's work in salvation. God's bringing about redemption, but, but we've been focusing on him for a long time, half the book to this point, and now he's gone. Now He's dead. And this passage, the one that we're dealing with here, shows the passing of the mantle, as it were, from Abraham to Isaac. That Isaac is going to be the new Abraham. That just as Elijah, in his passing, when he was about to die, passed on his mantle to Elisha. And remember, Elisha asked there in 2 Kings chapter 2 if he could have a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And that's what he received. And Elijah was taken away, and Elisha is left behind as the new Elijah, as it were, only doing greater things. Well, in this passage, we have Abraham passing off the scene. Father Abraham, he is now passed. He is gone. He is dead. And yet there is a new Abraham, as it were. The the message of redemption, God's promises, God's blessings that were given to Abraham are passing on. They're carrying on. The promises will be kept The blessings will be given to Isaac. The promises will be remade and renewed to Isaac. And the blessing will go to him and through him and his family that blessing will go to all the earth. So God is continuing his story and all in Abraham breathing his last. And notice there in verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons buried him in the in the cave of Machpelah, the same cave where his wife was buried. So he was buried with his wife, Sarah, in verse 10. What What an amazing life Abraham has led. What an amazing story God has told through him. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, that blessing is passing on to his son, and Isaac settles in Beer Lahairoi, a place that has appeared in our story before. So we see that blessing being passed on from Abraham to Isaac. And then thirdly, we see that God removes another competitor. The the younger sons have already been removed. The sons of Keturah have already been taken out of the picture and sent off to the east, leaving Isaac alone. But what about Ishmael? We just read that the blessing from God came to Isaac, his son. But then we see in verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son. There's another son who's a competitor that we need not to forget about. And this son is important as well because, remember, he's the older son. These younger sons, they had a much, much lesser claim on the inheritance. But here you have Ishmael. He's the older son. It's possible that he, could, that he could turn things around. It's possible that he might be able to be a competitor. He's also Abraham's son, and he is older even than Isaac. And so we, we bring Ishmael onto the scene, and we begin to discuss him. This is the one whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham and then it goes through another list of names that I won't read again for us, but all of the children that he has, all of these sons that he has. And look at verse 16. Lest we think that Ishmael is just, uh, you know, a scrub, someone that, that doesn't really matter, someone who, who, who is and also ran. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes, twelve princes Those are the kinds of sons that Ishmael has. And, of course, we remember that God had said to Abraham back in chapter 17 and verse 20 of Ishmael, He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. Yes, Ishmael is not the chosen son. That's Isaac. Isaac is the one who's going to be the the heir. But Ishmael is not just to be cast off. He's not just to to be thrown away. He himself is going to be blessed and he's going to have these 12 princes for sons. He's going to be a great nation. And he also dies in verse 17 at 137 years old. And We see in verse 18 all, that all of his people, he and all of his people settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. That is, away from Isaac is the point. He settled over against all his kinsmen. That ought to sound familiar because in chapter 16 and verse 12, the angel of the Lord speaking to the pregnant Hagar had said exactly the same thing. He shall settle over against all his kinsmen. So Ishmael is a fulfillment of prophecy as well, and you see in his life God blessing him and doing wonderful things in him, but God is removing him from the scene. You've got Isaac who is the heir, and on one hand you have The brothers, the sons of Keturah, removed off the scene. And on the other hand, you have Ishmael and all of his massive clan moved off the scene as well, making room for Isaac, leaving leaving Isaac as the sole heir. God removes Ishmael. And then in our final paragraph, we see that God prepares the next generation. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. We read about that, the Aramean of Padanaram, Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. So went back to family to, to, to find a wife there, and that's where he found his wife, Rebekah. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. That's a good thing, Isaac. Why? Because she was barren. The same thing that we've seen with his mother is now the case with his wife, he prays to the Lord. She was barren, and look at verse twenty-one: the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife, conceived. Now it, it's in one verse that we find out about that. We find out about the problem that she's barren, and in the same verse we find that she conceives. But later on, we learn that that was twenty years in the making. That it was twenty years took place in the middle of that verse, because he's sixty when she bears children and that's a a lesson for us by the way because that was one verse that just covered 20 years or explained that 20 years but here we are in the middle of the 20 years I, i don't know what your barrenness is i don't know what the struggle is you're dealing with i don't know what the thing is you're waiting for god to deliver you from waiting for God to give you, waiting for God to correct in your life, a problem that you're waiting for God to solve, a, a, a thing that you're waiting for God to, to teach you. I don't know what those things are. But sometimes, and maybe when I'm talking about it up here, I present it as if it's one verse. It's a simple, you prayed and God answered. Hey, isn't that easy? Isaac prayed and God answered. Wasn't that easy? Probably not in the 20 years it took while he was praying. Probably not in the midst of your 20 years. I don't don't know what you're going through. We all have struggles. We all have issues and pains, and we wrestle through them, and sometimes it sounds trite. It sounds glib for a preacher or a friend to say, hey, God works all things together for good. Can't we just move on? And you're stuck in the 20 years. I know what that's like. So though we blow past it, though we mention it very quickly, I want you to keep in mind how God is working and that the fact that He can mention the 20 years as if it's the same sentence or He can walk with you in the midst of that 20 years and, and sometimes He describes it one way and sometimes He describes it another way. But it was 20 years that He prayed for His wife and, and she conceived And what a pregnancy. Look at verse 22. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Hebrew there is extremely difficult. It's, it's, it's kind of like your prayer at that time would be, W-what? What? What? what, I, why, What's happening to me? What, I, I don't understand. And that's, that's, a, that's a verbatim translation of the Hebrew there for you, just so you know. She has no idea what's going on, and she goes to inquire of the Lord, what's going on? Is it better for me that I die than have this thing going on? I've been waiting for 20 years for, these, for, for, for a child, and now I've conceived, and there's war in my womb. <laughs> what's going on? And so she goes to inquire of the Lord. She didn't have the Bible to look into, uh, and so she went to inquire of the Lord. We don't doesn't tell us any more about that except the message that she received, which is there in verse 20, 23, the Lord says to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. She goes to inquire of the Lord about her pregnancy, and she finds out she has nations in her womb. No wonder there's stuff going on, right? No wonder it's a difficult pregnancy. You know, twins is bad enough. That's not what she's got going on, as it were, right? She's got twins in there, but she has nations in there, and they're, they're struggling with each other. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. You know, twins, twins often remain, you know, the closest of friends throughout life. These two twins are not that way. These two friends, uh, twins from the earliest time, even in the womb, are already struggling against one another, already fighting against one another. And when they come out, it's going to be no different. They're going to have to be separated because they're still going to be fighting with one another. Those are the twins, and that's the difficulty of the pregnancy that she's got going on right there. And so, these boys themselves, the twins, will need to be physically separated because they're wrestling with each other, and of course, they represent nations as well. And those nations will also wrestle with each other. The conflict doesn't end with just these two boys. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. No surprise there. That's normally the case. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. There's a surprise there. That's not normal. That's not the way things ought to shake out. That Normally, in this culture, the firstborn would receive the inheritance. And the subsequent children would receive their gifts, just like the sons of Keturah did. But normally, it's the the firstborn who is the primary heir. That's the one that's in charge. That's the one who will be served, and the younger will will serve the older. But in this case, it's different. Amongst these two, it's going to be flipped. So not only do you have these two who are struggling against one another, but but their story is an unusual story. You have a reversal of fortune happen here. You have God working in such a way that that this struggle is going to continue on in their life, but it's going to result in the younger being served by the older, which is backwards. That's what God tells him, tells her right at the beginning. And so you can imagine, you know, she, she was struggling because her pregnancy was a, was a problem, and so she went to inquire of the Lord, and she hears this message. <laughs> everything was cleared up, right? <laughs> she, she came away and understood everything just, just, just clearly, no. She would have been just as confused probably having received that message as before she received the message. She's confused. But that's the message that's received. And when her days to give birth were completed, verse 24, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. So here's the older brother. He's the first one to come out. He's red. He's hairy, like a hairy cloak. I don't have any hairy cloaks, but I imagine it's pretty hairy. (laughs) His whole body is that way. He's called Esau, and he will also be called Edom, which means red. And you know his story later on. He's going to do a deal with Jacob over some red stew, and he's going to sell his birthright, for some red stew, and so his name is called Edom. And afterward, verse 26, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. The younger comes out clutching his brother's heel, holding on to him, and so they call him Jacob. And Jacob sounds like uh, he takes by the heel, the heel grabber, the trickster. A cheater. And that's how he gets his name. So you have these two twins born, and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. What are the implications? There are many in this passage, but for today, I want to observe this. Throughout this story... And as you look at what God is doing in each of these generations, in each of these families, what is God doing? He is providing for and preserving and protecting the seed. Whether that preservation comes in the form of Abraham sending Keturah's sons away from Isaac to make room for Isaac who is the heir, so that there won't be competition against him, so that it will be his and he won't have to be fighting over it all the time. Abraham, before he dies, sends away the sons of Keturah to to free Isaac to be the heir uncontested. Well, that's, that's one way that that happens. That's one way that God is protecting and preserving and providing for the seed. Because remember, the seed is going to come through not Keturah's sons, through Isaac. Or whether, whether we see God preserving and protecting in the form of an angry and protective Sarah driving Hagar and Ishmael away to live in the desert we looked at chapters ago. Remember when Ishmael was 13 and, well, he was a little bit older than 13 because it was uh, Isaac's uh, day of his weaning and they had a party. And Ishmael was making fun or something of Isaac. Isaac. And Sarah saw it and she understood this is going to be a problem. And so she kicked out Hagar. She kicked out Ishmael. Abraham wasn't happy about it and the Lord said, let it be. Let it be. And so she got kicked out. Ishmael got kicked out, got sent away. Why? Because of the jealousy or the protectiveness or something of Sarah. The anger. But it results nevertheless in Ishmael, who is the primary competitor, the primary one who could could lodge uh, an argument, a complaint, a, a competing claim on the inheritance with Isaac, Ishmael is taken off the scene, he and all his people. God is paving the way God is providing for and preserving and protecting the seed. Or whether it's in the form of the oracle that we read about. In verse 23, Where Now you've got in the next generation, you've got these two twins, and they're already squabbling with each other before they've even breathed air. They're in the womb, and they're fighting. And so the oracle is given by God that actually they will become nations, Edom, Israel. They're squabbling with each other, and that squabbling will continue. And you've got the older, and you've got the younger, and the younger's the heel grabber. He's the cheater. But he's going to be the one who is ultimately served by the other. The older will serve the younger. And so what's happening there is that God is paving the way again for the one through whom the seed will come. So that Jacob will have the ascendancy. So that Jacob will have the inheritance. So that it will be through Jacob that that seed will come. God is the one Whoever the actor was, whoever the on-the-ground actor that we can look at and see, whoever that was, it was God who was accomplishing it. And even in the fulfillment of verse 23 and that oracle that we have there, when you think about how it ends up that the older serves the younger, how is it? It's through the character and the actions of Jacob and Esau as they interact with one another. Esau is willing to sell his birthright over dinner. Jacob's willing to trick his brother to sell his birthright over dinner. And similarly, with the blessing. So it was through the actions of man, and yet it was ultimately God accomplishing his purposes of, of clearing out the competition so that the line bearing the seed of the woman will have the place of prominence, will be protected, will be provided for, will be promoted. So I think that's the main implication that I want to look at today as we look at all of these paragraphs together, as we look at all of these generations together and their life story and what they've done. So what, what in the world is the application for us? Well, the application is easy to say and it's less easy to do. First, be patient. Those are simple words, aren't they? Simplest instruction ever, be patient. I haven't learned it yet, have you? Be patient. We tend to lose patience when deep down we think we should have what we want when we want it. I know what is best, and I know the best time frame, God. Get with the program. That's when we become impatient. The Christian can and must be patient knowing that God is at work at times and in ways that we can't see to accomplish His purposes that are far better than our own. So be patient. That's one message from this chapter here as we watch this family being moved away and that squabble happening, this other difficulty happening. And yet all the while, when you look back with our perspective, being able to look back in the book of Genesis and we see God clearing the way, we see God providing and protecting, promoting and preserving the seed. And I like to think that if I were here, I could have been patient in these times as I was praying for my wife for 20 years. Or that you could have been patient in that time as you were praying for your wife or as you were the wife being prayed for, as you were waiting for these things to happen. The Christian must learn to be patient because we serve God Almighty who is in charge. The first one is easy, be patient. The second one is just as easy, trust the Lord. Trust that He is bigger and more powerful than your circumstances. Think about your circumstance. Think about the one that really keeps you up at night. The one that makes you anxious. The one that distracts you when you're in a conversation about something else. The one that you find it hard to pray about anything else. Or perhaps you find it hard to pray because of this situation. Think about that situation. God is bigger and more powerful than that situation. And He sees the big picture where we don't. Here we are right down in the midst of the 20 years of praying and God sees the whole thing. He sees the big picture where you don't. He has pure motives where you might not. He has the might to do what is best in your circumstances and you're just a finite creature with no real strength. So Christian, trust Him. Trust Him. And thirdly, take comfort that God is providing for, preserving, and protecting you, His child. When we look at this chapter 25 of Genesis, we see these families that kind of go off into obscurity or or relative obscurity or, or at least off of the center of the scene. Of course, Of course, uh, the Edomites are going to show up and Ishmaelites are going to show up and things like that. But they're off the scene and they play bit parts at times. They come back in and then they leave. The focus is on God's working with God's people. The focus is on the line of the seed of the woman. And God is always preserving and protecting and promoting and providing for His seed. Christian, you are His seed. You are His child. And so all of these things that go on, all the aspects of your life, you don't, you don't need to understand them. I think I would like to understand them. I'm inquisitive. I want to know and I really wish and I, I have the why questions just like you do. And so often in this life we're not given those answers. But I don't need to see the whole thing. I know that I am His child. And I know that He is at work doing these things in my life. And my story may not end up being told quite like I had imagined or like I had hoped. But he will do those things in my life like he is doing those things in the life of Isaac and in the life of Jacob. So Christian, take comfort that God is doing those things for you. An anxious child of God is a contradiction in terms. Why are we anxious? Why do we allow ourselves to be anxious? Why do we give ourselves a pass on that when we know God Almighty and His commitment to us? Why would we ever be anxious? It may not look like it from where you sit, but God is at work for your good. I can say that confidently, Christian. Boldly. I can guarantee it because His Word says it. And he never drops the ball, and he's never late, and he always knows what he is doing. So Christian, trust him and be comforted. This passage gives us a peek at God working in his people over the course of three generations and dozens of people and, and, and uh, nations and things like that. And through all of that, he is moving the story of redemption forward from Abraham through Isaac and on to Jacob. And of course, we're in the first book of the Bible. That story continues, and we have a greater perspective because we get to see how it goes. We get to see how it continues, and we see that Jacob is not the end of the line. Jacob himself is not the seed of the woman, but the seed will come through him. We've already talked about Judah and what Judah does. But he doesn't, he's not the seed of the woman either. The, but later on we, we learn about David who's from the tribe of Judah and he comes on the scene. He seems like he might be the one, but he's not the seed of the woman. He acts like he acts. And we trace that line and we see it continuing and each new one that comes on the scene, Solomon is very promising, but he's not the seed of the woman. Look at his life. And then his sons and then their sons and, and on and on and we're waiting for the seed of the woman. And he finally comes on the scene in the New Testament. And the genealogies we read in the beginning of the New Testament, the indications that are given from the way the gospel writers talk about Jesus are trying to indicate to us, trying to to point to us that he is the seed of the woman. And now let's look at his life and what does Jesus do. Remember the seed of the woman is to crush the head of the serpent? He, he, He comes on the scene and the New Testament writers are saying, hey, that's him. Let's look at him, and what does he do? Well, he obeys God. In the face of temptation, he stands strong. He he honors God in all that he does. He fulfills the law completely, and he dies to bear the penalty for your sin and mine. So he does exactly what the seed of the woman was to do. He is the seed of the woman. He is the one who lives a life of obedience and dies a sacrificial death in my place. God piles my guilt upon him and punishes it in him and then raises him from the dead to say that the victory has been won and the payment is complete and it is finished. And that's mine by faith. And that can be yours by faith. There is no reason for you to play the part of the one who is set aside to make room for the seed, to make room for the child. Why don't you become a child by trusting in Christ, by resting in what He has done, ceasing to demand your own way, ceasing to establish your own terms of relationship with God, you're going to do it, and, and, and you know what's better. You don't, and you haven't done it, and you won't do it. And Jesus has. And we see in this story that God is preparing the way centuries beforehand for the seed of the woman to come on the scene, for Christ himself to make his appearance, to accomplish the work that he does. He's making a way for the Savior who will come through Isaac, not not Ishmael or Keturah's sons, and through Jacob, not, not the older twin Esau. God is doing a sorting and a separating. He's making way for that coming Messiah, Jesus himself, who will save all his people from their sins. In the midst of the story, it's easy for us to lose sight of the larger picture of God's redeeming work. And folks, in the midst of our lives, it's easy to lose sight of the larger picture of God's redeeming work isn't it? We can get focused and distracted on one little thing. It's easy to lose sight of that larger picture of redemption. May we be reminded today and this week that our Father truly is at work accomplishing His purposes for our good and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, this passage has talked about generations and nations and names that are hard to pronounce and uh, people who lived long ago and people who are are born and pass off the scene. We don't don't read any more about them or some that we read very little about. But in the midst of all this, we see you at work with your focus of attention being on Isaac and not Ishmael or the sons of Keturah. We see your focus being on Jacob, not Esau. We see ultimately that you are paving the way, you are pointing towards Christ who will come on the scene through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. That he's the one sent by you to, as the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent on our behalf. And we are grateful. May we trust you Even from looking at this passage and seeing again your faithfulness, even in subtle ways, even even in unexpected ways, may we trust you, and may we be patient, and may we be comforted. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's going to be a family to come up uh, forward and pray with you um, after the service is over if you would like, but I have two announcements uh, before we go. The first one is a reminder, as Monty said, there will be no evening service tonight, and uh, the second one is a little bit longer. The elders would like to encourage you to please attend a special congregational meeting this Wednesday night at 7, right here in the auditorium. Especially if you are a member, please make every effort to attend. We have some very important information uh, to pass on to you at that time. And even if you have small children at home, and, uh, and for some other reason both parents can't make it, uh, please Do your very best to make it so that at least one of you can be here that night, uh, Wednesday night, this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. And what's it about you, ask? You'll just have to come Wednesday night and find out. And if that doesn't pique your interest, I don't know how to do so. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.